Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. one of the most controversial and perhaps even the most theologically challenging portions of any of Paul's letters. Even he knew that it was a challenging thing he was writing 
because he says, you will say to me then, how can it be like that? How is that fair? How can that be the way that God actually works? He understood that if you followed his argument, if you followed the way he was laying out his theology, then you would reach that question. You'd reach the point of asking, how can that possibly be fair? At the beginning of what we call chapter 9, he started laying out that God picks and chooses. And he demonstrated that from several different portions of the Old Testament, reaching all the way back to the foundation of Israel, to Abraham being told that he was going to have a child. And through his seed, through his progeny, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed, even though at that time Abraham had no children. And then God ends up saying, I've chosen one and I've rejected the other. Even though you've come to me and said, let Ishmael be before you, I reject Ishmael. Instead, through Isaac, your seed's going to be called. And then Isaac and Rebekah have twins. Well, mostly (laughs) Rebekah. They have twins. And even as the babies are in the womb, God chooses one and rejects the other. Jacob I've loved, Esau I have hated. So after he has laid out that God picks and chooses, naturally the next question is going to be, well then he picks and chooses based on what? What is it in any individual, any person that would cause God to pick them, to choose them? I certainly want to be in the picked and chosen group, so how do I get myself in that group? And Paul says, it's because God has mercy on who he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he'll have compassion. And in saying that, he reached back and quoted God himself as God passed by Moses, putting Moses in the cleft of the rock. He proclaimed his own name. He exhibited his own glory. And his own explanation of himself was, I am the God who is merciful to who I'm merciful. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So that is definitional to God based on God. God himself defines himself exactly that way. The God who is not in the business of giving an answer for himself. The God who does not feel that he needs to defend himself in any way. The God who could say to Moses when Moses said, who should I say sent me? The God that said, I am. That's all you need to know. I am that I am. Go tell Pharaoh, I am says, let my people go. God is not in the business of explaining himself to us, his creatures. So instead, he just simply says, I'll have mercy on whoever I choose to have mercy. I'll have compassion on whoever I choose to have compassion. And that's all you creatures need to know. Well, then Paul thinks about it. And recognizes that not only does God have compassion on certain people, but then he brings up Pharaoh. And he uses Pharaoh as the example, reaching again all the way back now into Exodus, that God said that he raised Pharaoh up, made Pharaoh mighty, and then hardened his heart 
for the express reason that God then would have somebody to pour out his wrath on, somebody that he could bring his plagues upon, for the sole reason that the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles, would come to know that the God of Israel is the only God who could demonstrate himself this way, and therefore people would have genuine fear and reverence of that God. So he kept Pharaoh alive so that he could pour out plagues on Pharaoh in Egypt, and then he finally drowned their whole army in the Red Sea, and God said, I did all of that just to demonstrate myself. Just because I'm in the enterprise of glorifying myself. And so I have mercy on whoever I want to have mercy. And Paul says, and who he will, he hardens. And both of those aspects of God are demonstrated by Paul from what we call the Old Testament, what he simply calls the scripture. He reaches back into the earliest books of the Old Testament, into Genesis, into Exodus, and he demonstrates from those two books that this is the way God has always been. God has always picked and chosen solely because of his mercy, simply because of his compassion, and the very same God hardens whoever he wants. He hardens whoever he wills, and he does all of that to the glory of himself so that he can demonstrate his own grace and he can demonstrate his own judgment. And all of that falls under the heading of his own holiness so that he can demonstrate to the denizens of earth who he is, what he's like, what kind of God he is. He is a God who is absolutely fair and just and at the same time is merciful and righteous and holy and a judge. And all of that is who he is. So Paul says, that's the God you're dealing with. He'll have mercy on whoever he wants and he'll harden whoever he wants. And so Paul concludes, knowing that's all true, he says, well, then it can't be of him that wills. It can't be of him that runs. It has to be, salvation has to be a result of God simply showing mercy. Because he is the God who has mercy on whoever he'll have mercy on. So then it can't be him who wills. Now, this is just a reality, if you look in the New Testament, you won't find the word free will anywhere. It doesn't exist, despite the popularity of free will theology, despite the fact that people will tell you you have to choose Jesus of your own volition, of your own free will, you have to decide for yourself. Despite the popularity of that theology, you don't find that theology anywhere in the Bible. And especially as you look, both Old and New Testament, in every passage that has anything to do with salvation, you will never once find you have to choose. You have to exercise your will. And in this verse, Paul adamantly declares that it can't be your will. And the reason it can't be your will is because your will is very, very limited. Uh, you may remember that Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. And the whole point of that book was to demonstrate that your will is not free. Your will is, in fact, bound. 
And because of the binding of your will, you're not capable of doing the things you think you ought to be able to do. Jesus himself, when he was walking on the planet, asked the question, which one of you, by taking thought, could add one cubit to his stature? The Old Testament says, can the leopard change his spots? Can he get up one day and go, I plan not to look like this? Can an Ethiopian change his skin? Can any of us change anything about ourselves? Our wills are really, really limited. You may will to do a great many things. You may will, you may decide, you may choose within your own mind, within your own conscience. You may decide that you want to be king of England, but you can't. Your heritage isn't going to allow that. You may decide you want to be taller. You you can't do that. Your will is so extremely limited that the theology of the Bible says you cannot utilize that very limited will to obligate an eternal God. The eternal God picks and chooses what he chooses to do according to his own good pleasure. And his own good pleasure is to have mercy on some and to harden some. So then Paul says it can't be him that wills and it can't be him that runs. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how hard you exercise yourself. It doesn't matter how you hold your flesh down or how you try to make yourself better. You can't possibly be good enough to actually obligate God now we say repeatedly that yes once you are saved once you know God once you have the Holy Spirit of God inside you you will in fact do good works you will walk in the works that God has ordained that you would walk in you're going to actually live your life in such a way that it is demonstrative of the fact that you belong to Christ that's a fact that will happen But that's not going to happen before salvation, and it's certainly not going to happen so that God must save you because you were just so darn good. You understand the difference? And so Paul says, it's not of him that wills, it's not of him that runs, it's God that shows mercy. He has mercy on whom he desires, says verse 18. He hardens whom he desires, says verse 18. And verse 19 asks the question, well then why does he find fault? The example that Paul just gave was of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had no choice. Pharaoh had his heart hardened by God so that God could demonstrate his power and authority over Pharaoh and the Egyptians Pharaoh didn't get a choice in it, and yet God kept judging Pharaoh and ultimately kills Pharaoh and his army, and they didn't get any choice in any of that. And so that is a demonstration of the very question that's being asked. How can he then find fault? How can he judge people, seeing as how no one resists his will? Everybody only does whatever God determines they're going to do. People only have faith in Christ if God gives them the ability to. So then if they don't have faith in Christ, how can God judge them for not having faith in Christ when he didn't give them the faith in Christ? How is that fair? And of course, Paul's answer is, who are you? Who are you to answer back against God? And then he goes on to talk about the potter. 
And as we looked at two weeks ago in Isaiah and in Jeremiah, this is language that is already in the scriptures that already is demonstrative of God's ability to do whatever he wants with Israel. He tells Jeremiah, go to the potter's house, go and watch the potter make something on the wheel. And then the potter was making something on the wheel, and then it was broken. It was marred. It was destroyed in some way. And so the potter just took that lump of clay, mashed it all back down, and remade the whole thing again into whatever he wanted to make it into. And God says, that's me with Israel. I can do whatever I want with Israel because I'm the potter, you're the clay. Which is why Paul can say that God can, from the same lump, make one vessel for honor. Those are the people that he's having mercy on. And he can make another vessel for dishonor. Those are the people that he hardens. And ultimately it's up to him because he's the potter. He's the one making those decisions. They are nothing but clay. That is, by the way, why we sang the song that we just sang. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Because God can do whatever he wants to do. Now, I've read some commentaries, dare I say rather Arminian commentaries, that aren't comfortable with Paul's answer there. And in fact, I read a commentator recently who said that when Paul said, well, who are you, O man, that that was really kind of a cop-out. That he had written himself into a corner where he had described this very, very sovereign God who had mercy on who he wanted, who hardened who he wanted. And then naturally people would ask, how is that fair? And Paul didn't know how to answer the question, how is that fair? And so Paul ended up kind of copping out and going, well, who are you to even ask that question? Just back off that question. But the fact is, Paul is being very, very scriptural in his answer to that question. Because... He has already demonstrated the potter and the clay equation. The potter and the clay is already in the scripture. So the same way that he demonstrated God's ability to be merciful on who he wants out of the book of Genesis, to harden who he wants out of the book of Exodus, he's now going to Isaiah and Jeremiah to show that God has always demonstrated his ability to do whatever he wants with what is his and that he has likened it to a potter and a clay. Therefore, God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants with what he has already made. So when Paul's answer is, who are you to answer against God? That's a very scriptural answer. That's a very biblical answer. He's saying, don't you know the God that is already demonstrated in Scripture? He's the God who doesn't give answers for how he does things. He's the God who does whatever he wants the way he wants. And he has already said to you, Israel, that he can do whatever he wants with you because you're just clay and he's a potter. And that ends the introduction and brings us about up to date. But do you hear the absolute sovereignty that Paul is demonstrating here that God can do whatever he wants and if you are saved that's a matter of God's mercy and his kindness and his grace and his goodness to you it can't be anything within you And the older I get, the longer I live, the more I know about myself, the more I conclude it has to be grace 
it has to be mercy because it can't possibly be me. If God ever judged me based on me, oh, I'm such a dead man. So it has to be grace. It has to be mercy. So starting at verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded, the thing shaped, the thing made will not say to the maker, to the molder, why do you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one vessel for common use? Now, I think his reference to one lump right here since this is all about Israel, since he's continually talking about Israel and God picking and choosing within Israel, I think the one lump at this point is Israel. He's saying, can't I do whatever I want with Israel? And in Israel, make some vessels for honor, the ones I'm merciful to, and make some vessels for dishonor, the ones that I harden. Now, yes, I think we can expand that theologically and say the one lump is all mankind, and by the way, interesting that he would use the analogy of clay, given that human beings are made out of the dust of the earth. Add water, get clay. And so the analogy fits perfectly that God can do whatever he wants with what he's made out of the clay of this earth. So yes, I could expand that and say the whole human race is the one lump and God can do whatever he wants with any portion, anybody from that same lump. But I think here he's really honing in on Israel as the one lump. Also because when you go back and look at the passage in Jeremiah, which we did two weeks ago, God specifically says, this clay is you, house of Israel. I can do whatever I want with you. So Paul is using that same analogy. Does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for common use? Verse 22, we're finally to the new stuff. We have finally caught up. What if God, now I know that kind of sounds like Paul is stating a hypothetical, but what he's really doing is saying, think about it for just a moment. Think about who God is, what you know about him, how he demonstrates himself in scripture. What if this is how it is? And now he's going to describe how it is. And if this is not fitting with your thinking about God, if this doesn't comport with your theology, then you need to change the way you think because this is the only way that God is. So what if God is like this? So he's saying, this is the way that God works. Think about it. Think it through. Consider it. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, is God willing to demonstrate his wrath? Do we have any evidence that God is willing to demonstrate his wrath? Yes. Yes. Yeah, the whole Old Testament, I think, would kind of stand for that. 
God is perfectly willing to demonstrate his wrath. So knowing that that's what God is like, knowing that God is perfectly willing to demonstrate his judgment and his righteousness and his holiness, knowing that about him, why doesn't he just wipe us all out? I mean, is there anybody here who can possibly say, you know, when God pours out his wrath, I deserve to not be under that wrath. I deserve to sidestep that wrath because I'm so good. I mean, dig me. I ought to be able to walk right through that wrath unscathed. Well, then God ought to, since he's willing to pour out his wrath, he ought to just wipe us all out. He's done it before. It's called the flood. He saved eight people. And not because they were the good ones, but we read in Genesis, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So again, he picked, he chose, and he did it graciously. He did it out of mercy. And then he wiped out everybody else on the planet. Peter says... That next time he's not going to do it with water, he's going to do it with fire. God is perfectly willing to show his wrath. So Paul says, consider this, think about it. God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, that's why God pours out wrath. It's what he did to Pharaoh. It's what he said to Pharaoh. It's what Paul recited here about Pharaoh. He said, I've raised you up for this very purpose to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God pours out his wrath to demonstrate who he is, what he's like, what sort of power he has. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make that power, that authority of his known to the world, What if, despite the fact that that's how he is, he endured with much patience vessels of wrath who were prepared for destruction? That's a really hard theological phrase. That's a really difficult one. Vessels of wrath made for destruction. The King James says vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. The same way that God created human beings for the purpose of saving them and bringing them to his son so that his son would be glorified through all of eternity. In the exact same way, Paul is saying he made some people for the sole purpose of destroying them for his own glory. And they are vessels of wrath fitted, made for destruction. That's why they exist. That's why they're on the planet. That's why they draw breath is so that God in glorifying himself can pour out his wrath on them. And before you think that's too Calvinistic a bit of theology, it's exactly what Paul cited about Pharaoh. God said to Pharaoh, I kept you and all the Egyptians alive For the sole reason of my having somebody to pour out my wrath on. So that I could bring these plagues on you. So that I could demonstrate to all the denizens of earth that I in fact have this kind of authority and power. Now if you don't like that, if it doesn't feel good, and it doesn't. If it rubs up against your flesh, if it's making your mind run in circles. I can't help you except to say that's the only God you find in the Bible. It's the only God that exists. 
You don't find anywhere in the Bible that says, oh yeah, remember that God that Paul described? Well, he's just a figment of Paul's imagination. God is really a great big lovey bunny who loves everybody and can't wait for everybody to get to heaven with him. That God isn't in the Bible anywhere. The only God you find in the Bible is the God who is willing to pour out wrath to demonstrate his authority, his power. And if you know that about him, that he's like that, then you ought to be really, really grateful that he decided to be merciful to you. Because he was under no obligation. Yeah, the Psalms say, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Whatever pleases him, that's what he does. And whatever he does, he's pleased with. After he does it, he's pleased. I remember listening to Eddie Jacks years ago at a conference down in Chattanooga, preaching on our God is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. And he finished his sermon by saying that someday we, the church, the chosen, the elect of God, are going to be standing before the throne of God and we're going to be singing to him and praising him and thanking him The 24 elders are going to be casting down their crowns. We're going to be singing and praising about how wonderful he is and thanking him, thanking him, thanking him. And he's going to say, my pleasure. I was pleased to do this. This worked out exactly how I was pleased to have it work. So. This God, this sovereign God who can do whatever he wants, what if. Although he's willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, what if he endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I don't know if you're anything like me, and I hope to God you're not. When I look at the world, I get really fed up really quickly. Anybody else in here like that? Yeah, I mean, anybody in here hate it when the pastor asks you to raise your hand. Raise your hand. How many of you? Oh, okay. That's okay. Fine. um, Yeah, I, I look at the world and I just think, how can God be this patient? How can God put up with this level of sin and debauchery and God hating this and people who use the name of Christ as an epithet and people who kill wantonly, openly, People who just destroy the good of this planet. People who have no fear, no concern, no worry about the worship of God. I keep thinking, man, if I were God, I'd be wiping them out right and left. And that's why you should be happy. I'm not God. (laughs) I would show them you, you don't get away with that. Well, here Paul is saying the reason God is doing that. He's putting up with, he is long-suffering toward these vessels of wrath that he has made for destruction. And he did it, look at verse 23, and he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he also prepared beforehand for mercy. So he is prepared some beforehand 
for glory. He has prepared some beforehand because he knew since the foundation of the world who those people were going to be, wrote their names down in the Lamb's Book of Life, and prepared them for glory so that he could give them to his son so that his son was going to be worshiping glorified through all of eternity while we who are saved by Christ praise him, worship him, thank him, and exist because of the extreme goodness, glory, and grace of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. But then equally there are people who exist who are vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. God is being patient with them while he's bringing about mercy on those of us he has chosen. Which is why when he gets to chapter 11, Paul is going to say, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. There's a definite number. There's a definite number of people that God is saving. And when it has reached that fullness, then God is going to turn his attention back to Israel and all the things that he has promised to do in terms of regathering them and planting them in the land and giving them peace and they recognize their Savior. All of that is going to happen after he has finished dealing with the Gentiles. So there's all these Gentiles on the planet and they're not all saved. Why are they not all saved? Because God has determined that some are going to be vessels of mercy, some are going to be vessels of wrath. He's putting up with the vessels of wrath until he has brought together the full number of those those who were made for mercy and for glory. And that is the divine plan of God. And here's the important thing to remember. You don't get an option. You don't get a choice. God didn't ask any human being at any point, are you good with my plan? This is the way I'm planning to do things. You all right with this? God doesn't act like that. When God imposed his law on Israel at Mount Sinai, did he check with any of them? Did he say to them, now look, I've got this law. It's a really hard law. And uh, if you break it in any one place, you're guilty of the whole law. And then I'll curse you and I'll curse you bad for not keeping my law. You up for that? He didn't check with anybody. He just said to Moses, this is my law. This is my covenant between me and Israel. Get down there and tell them so. That's the way God works. He does whatever he wants. You see it demonstrated time and time again. And here Paul is saying that's still the way God works. He's still picking. He's still choosing. He's still merciful and he still hardens. And he still makes vessels of wrath and he still makes vessels of mercy and the vessels of mercy are prepared for glory, and the vessels of wrath are prepared for destruction. And that's the way God works. And I don't mean to overemphasize this, but I'm going to because Paul does. If you don't like it, God don't care. <laughs> it's just how he is. And what astounding kindness on God's part. What astounding grace on God's part that he would reveal himself to people like us. Yes. Bits of clay like us. Worms like us. Who he's under no obligation to do anything for. And yet he would introduce himself to us. Draw us to himself. Would predestine us. Would elect us. Would call us. Would justify us. Would glorify us. All for his own glory, 
and not anything to do with us. That is astounding grace. So while you're busy being uncomfortable with the hardening, the vessels of wrath stuff, remember that that same God equally was really good, really kind, really gracious to you, though you didn't deserve a thing at all. So if you don't like the really, really sovereign God because he makes vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, if that's the part that you don't like, remember that he's equally the God that makes vessels of mercy that he's created for glory. And that's all part of the absolute sovereignty of God. There's a really, really good upside to the sovereignty of God. And there's a really, really serious downside to the sovereignty of God. And there's no middle ground. And there's no neutrality. There's no gray area. You're a vessel of wrath or you're a vessel made for Christ. And that's pretty much all there is. So if you ended up on the good side of that equation, oh, thank God. Because you didn't do it. You should never stop thanking him and praising him. I can get down on my face in front of a God like that. And often do. A God that's waiting around for me to pick him. To ratify him. To validate him. To tell him that I agree and approve of his plan. And that I picked and chose him. And I made him my Lord and Savior. That's a weak-kneed God. That's a God who better bow down before me because he needs me to validate him. But the real God, the God of the Bible, is a God who does whatever he wants. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called. Remember back in chapter 8, whom he foreknew, he predestined. Furthermore, those that he predestined, he called. So Paul is talking about a particular group of people, those people that God called he doesn't call everybody but he calls certain people to himself and according to Moses he calls you by name I find that fascinating Moses out on the backside of nowhere walking through the desert walks by a burning bush that's not consumed and then you read that he stopped to look at it like like you wouldn't you know like you'd keep going He stopped to observe it. What an astounding thing when a voice said to him, Moses. That's amazing. Notice that the voice of God did not say, hey, Hebrew guy. Yo, you with sandals, come here. No, specific. That's why it says specifically that he wrote down names in the Lamb's book of life. That's why the book of Revelation says that all we who belong to Christ ultimately get a new white stone with our new name written on it. He's very into names. Naming is very important to him. He calls us by name. He gives us names. So, he called those people who he named. He called particular people. And then Paul says, not from the Jews only, 
but also from the Gentiles. That's the first place in this chapter that you find the word Gentiles. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God is choosing. God is calling. God is picking people. He's merciful to people. And all the way through this, he's been demonstrating that God picks and chooses within Israel. And then he says, and not Israel only, not the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. You ought to be really happy that's in there. Because that's you. That's you right in the text. That God didn't just pick Jews, he also picked some Gentiles. Now, let's launch into a bit of the controversy. Because Paul said the word Gentiles right there, you can read many, many commentators who will say that this next portion that Paul quotes directly out of the book of Hosea has something to do with Gentiles. And in fact, they say, Paul is now taking this passage that applied to Israel exclusively, and he's now applying it to Gentile believers, therefore evidence proof that the church is now Israel. And so they combine those concepts, combine those ideas, and that's the covenantal idea, that's the amillennial idea. And so when those people go looking for evidence, looking for proof to validate that theory that the church is now Israel, and Israel is the church of the Old Testament, they find passages like this, and they say, look, here is a passage that clearly and obviously is about Israel, but Paul is applying it to the Gentiles. I'm going to demonstrate to you now that he's not, <laughs> number one, because he's simply quoting a passage from Hosea, which was clearly and obviously only about Israel, which is the reason he brings it up in a passage where he's talking about Israel. And then he mentioned, when talking about God being merciful, that he's also merciful to Gentiles. He also called some Gentiles, but he hasn't changed the subject. He's still talking about Israel. For instance, if you go down to chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for Israel, is their salvation. The topic is still Israel. But more importantly, look at verse 27. After he's done quoting the passage from Hosea, which we're going to look at in detail in a minute, he then says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So what's the topic? Israel. The topic's still Israel. He hasn't suddenly decided that Gentile believers are now somehow new or spiritual Israel or true Israel. That language isn't found anywhere in the Bible. And in fact, all the way through Romans 9, 10, and 11, every time you see the word Israel, it means, stop me if this is too complicated, it means Israel. Is that too difficult? No. Because if Paul in the middle of talking about Israel, who he is already identified as his kinsman after the flesh. He has already said who Israel are, who Israel is, are. 
One of those two. They are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's already identified who he's talking about. So if at some point in his conversation about national Israel, national hardened Israel, national believing Israel, if at some point he's changed the definition of Israel, then it is incumbent on Paul himself to tell us that. He would have to say, now at this point, I'm using the word Israel, but what I really mean is uh, the church. But he doesn't do that. He just, kept, he just keeps saying Israel, 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 because he means Israel, Israel, Israel. Is that too complicated? That's right. Do I need to do any more exegesis than to say words have meaning, they mean what they say, and Israel means Israel? Is that too complicated? Here's a basic principle. The Bible means what it says. There, there you go. The Bible means what it says. It says what it means. Had God meant something else than what he said, then he'd have said something else. Because that's what else he meant. But he meant exactly what these words say. He used these words because these were the words that best conveyed the very meaning that he was trying to bring forward. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. So there's no reason, no warrant, no real exegetical cause to suddenly, when Paul starts talking about Hosea in 25, to reach back into verse 24 and say, oh, he said the word Gentiles. That's it. He's talking about Gentiles now. And yet... I know some of you are kind of grinning at me, but that's the way some people do their theology. And you can find lots and lots of commentators and commentaries that say that very thing. And if you just look closely at the text and read the context of what Paul's talking about and what he's going to continue talking about, that interpretation is impossible. And by the way, since I use the word interpretation... The Bible nowhere says interpret the Bible. The Bible says read it, understand it. It doesn't say allegorize it. It doesn't say find some hidden meaning in it. It says exactly what it means to say our job is to understand it. Does that make sense? Preach the word. Okay. Really, you summed it up in preach the word, Absolutely. which is really all I was saying. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Be instant, in season and out. Just preach the word. So that's all we're trying to do is just preach what the words are right here. All right, so let's talk about Hosea for a moment. We, a couple of years ago, went verse by verse through the book of Hosea. You can go to the website, salvationbygrace.org. And if you go to the listen link, you can then pick from books of the Bible and you will find Hosea there. Click on it and you can hear us work our way verse by verse through the book of Hosea. The important thing to know about Hosea is that Hosea was told to go and marry a prostitute. They ended up having three children. The first of the children was named Jezreel. A reminder of how wrong Israel had gone in the valley of Jezreel. But it also means scattered. It's God saying, I'm going to scatter you. 
The next child was named Lo-Ami, and the next child was Lo-Ruhama, which means not mine, you don't belong to me, you're not my people, and then no mercy. It's the Hebrew word for mercy with the low, no, right on front of it. No mercy. Scattered, not my people, no mercy. Those are the names that are given to the three kids. So the wife of Hosea then leaves him. And then God says, go and get her, bring her back, build a hedge around her, protect her, keep her from her foreign lovers. And then God himself explains it in the book and says, that's Israel. That's how they've treated me. They're prostitutes chasing after other gods. Therefore, I'm going to scatter them. I'm not going to have mercy on them. They're not going to be called my people. But then God says, in the very place where I've scattered them, in the very place where they're called, not my people, in the very place where there is no mercy on them, in that place, I'm going to have mercy on them. I'm going to draw them back to myself, and I'm going to make them my people again. The same way that you're going to go and get your wife, who, by the way, her name was Gomer. There's a good name. The same way that you're going to draw Gomer back to yourself and build a hedge around her so that she doesn't go chasing after her lovers, I'm going to do that to Israel. I'm going to bring Israel back to myself. I'm going to have mercy on them, and I'm going to make them my people. Paul picks that up, knowing that that is part of the history and prophecy of Israel. He picks it up and says, verse 25, As God also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, I'll call beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it is said to them, you are not God's people, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Why did Paul pull that out? What's he getting at? Well, his whole argument throughout this has been, God's not done with Israel. And the reason that God's not done with Israel is because God has made promises to Israel that aren't fulfilled yet. As Paul is writing this letter, Israel, especially the northern ten tribes, have been scattered And they don't have a temple, and they don't have worship, and they've lost their sense of heritage and religion, and as a consequence, they're like, not my people. And God is not being merciful to them. And yet, they're the very people who are walking around with the promise, in the place where you are called, not my people, I'm going to call you my people. In the very place where you are called, no mercy. I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm going to draw you back to myself. And of course, if you know the promises of the prophets all the way through the Old Testament, they speak with one voice in saying that God is going to restore the 12 tribes of Israel, the northern and the southern. He's going to change the enmity that that the house of Israel has with the house of Judah. He's going to bring them all back to the land, establish them as a nation. That ultimately Christ, the son of David, is going to rule over them and they're going to be at peace and they're going to have 
phenomenal riches and God is going to bless them and through blessing them the blessings of God on them are going to flow out to the nations the nations are going to be blessed because they live among Israel God has all of that intended for Israel God made a promise to Abraham unconditional promise that they were going to have that land it was going to belong to them in perpetuity David has an unconditional promise. Your son is going to rule over the the collective 12 tribes of Israel, which he never did when he was here on the planet. My point is, and I do have a point. I know I'm talking fast, but the point is, those Israelites, the nation of Israel, have all of these unconditional promises. And because they are unconditional, God made them with himself And it doesn't matter that Israel went into apostasy or that they played the harlot or that they've been scattered because they weren't conditioned on Israel or Israel's behavior. Remember, it's not of him that wills. It's not of him that runs. It's of God who shows mercy. And God has said repeatedly, I'm going to have mercy on Israel. You got it? Got it. He said it all the way back in Hosea. Paul picks it up, puts it in the book of Romans, which is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And as far as Paul is concerned, the kingdom is not now. The kingdom is coming. The restoration of Israel is coming. The regathering of Israel is coming. Why? Because it's promised in Hosea. Am I alone up here? No. Do you see how wonderful this is? Do you see the marvel of this? By the way, let me show you one other quick thing that I find interesting. Look at the beginning of verse 25. As he says in Hosea. Who's he in that sentence? God. Through the prophet Hosea. God speaking. Paul says, when you look at this Bible, when you're reading this Bible, when you're reading the scripture, that's God talking to you. You want to hear God speak to you? Read the book. You want to hear him speak with an audible voice? Read it out loud. (laughs) This is God. This is the very word of God. Verse 27. Am I ranting and raving yet? Because I, I feel like I'm right on the verge. So. And proving that the previous passage out of Hosea still applies to Israel the same way it did when it was originally prophesied. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Saying, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, it is a remnant That will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. Okay, let's take verse 28 first. Notice Paul's expectation. Whatever the word of God has already said, whatever he has spoken through the prophets, God is going to execute his word. In Isaiah, God already says that that word will not return to him void, but will accomplish the thing that he sent it to accomplish. So when he spoke through the prophets about what he planned to do with Israel, Paul sees that as still good, still binding on God, still part of God's character and unchanging nature. God is still going to do this, even though it doesn't look like he's done it. 
for thousands of years. It's still a good promise. Here, let's try this. This will maybe make it easier. Is there anybody in the room who, okay, I'm going to have you raise your hands again. How many of you still hate it when I ask you to raise your hand? How many, okay. That, that's. Does anybody in this room actually, actually, does anybody actually believe that Jesus is coming back? Oh, well, you know, that's been 2,000 years. Doesn't matter. Why doesn't it matter? Because he, he said he's coming back. It's been two days by God's reckoning. Day with the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. Been two days for God, says Conrad. Okay, so it's been that length of time since Christ left and said he'd be back. And it's been a couple thousand years in human reckoning. And, and yet we believe that he's coming back. Everybody in the room believed that, even though it's been a couple thousand years. Hmm. God made promises to Israel and to King David and to Abraham. God made those promises as everlasting promises, and it's been three, four thousand years. So does it matter that that's roughly twice as long as the promise of Christ coming back? No, and yet there have been people through the history of the church who feel that because Israel has been scattered for so long, God must be done with them. He must have given up on them because they're looking at the circumstances on the planet. They're looking at what's going on in the world instead of looking at the word of God. How many times have I defined faith as faith is trusting that the word of God is more true than your circumstances. You're going to go through all kinds of circumstances that would otherwise make you question the word of God. But you stand on the word of God. That's faith. Paul says, and is about to say, and we're about to read it, that the reason Israel did not ultimately, ultimately achieve the righteousness they were seeking was because they didn't do it in faith. This is all about faith. Salvation is all about faith. God is going to put the spirit in certain people. They're going to exude faith, faith in Christ, faith in the finished work, faith in God and his word to always say the right thing, that God does not lie to us. God is not purposely confusing us. He's telling us what he wants to tell us. And we have faith, confidence in this word. And this word says, God's not done with Israel. And Old Testament or New, you can't get away from that fact that God's just not done with Israel. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel and says, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. The reason that Paul's quoting that is because that is the subject of this whole chapter. It began with the question, what about Israel? Israel killed their Messiah. Israel, by and large, aren't following or believing their Messiah. Paul is saying, just like Jesus said, the scriptures have to be fulfilled. That's why I had to come, I had to be beaten, I had to die, I had to resurrect again. That's what he told the two on Emmaus Road, because the scriptures had to be fulfilled. 
Okay, same thing here. Paul is saying the scriptures have to be fulfilled. Isaiah has already told you that even though the sons of Israel are like the sands of the sea, innumerable, nevertheless, a remnant of them are going to be saved. So God picks some, God hardens some. In chapter 11, he's going to say partial hardening has come to Israel. He's already described that God has the ability to do that. And then some are going to be saved. But that's what Isaiah predicted way back when. That even though there'd be lots of Israelites, there'd be a remnant that were saved. A remnant that begin the church. A remnant that come to Christ. Which is why it's even more astounding when we get to chapter 11 that God, that Paul then deals with the non-remnant, the rest of the nation. And God is faithful to them too. It's astounding theology. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. I got to go. We got to get done here. The Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. What happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? Wipe out. Destroy those people. So Isaiah said, except the God of Sabaoth. Do you know what that means? It means Lord of hosts. Same phrase. The God who is in charge of the armies of heaven. That God, unless he had left us, Israel, unless he had left Israel a remnant, they would have ultimately all ended up, because of their rebellion, because of their chasing foreign gods, because of their breaking the law, they all would have been destroyed the same way Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, except that God, in mercy and only because of mercy, left a remnant in Israel. So this remnant theology that Paul is going to continue expanding on is firmly grounded in the Old Testament. It's firmly grounded in his scriptures. He's not making up anything new there are no novelties here he's just saying what the bible already says and declaring that the bible is still exactly correct except the lord of sabaoth had left to us a posterity we would have become like sodom and we would have resembled gomorrah now by the way that you can go back and look at that in isaiah 1 9 the previous quote you can go find in Isaiah 10.22. You can see that Paul is in fact quoting from Isaiah. So what shall we say then? We're at verse 30. Remember the previous time that Paul said that? So what are we going to say then? He builds his theology for a while. He builds the theology. Sometimes difficult theology. Sometimes tough theology. Even Peter takes the time to say, man, that Paul, sometimes he writes stuff that's hard to be understood. I mean, it's tough theology sometimes. And then he reaches the point where he says, so what are we saying? What are we getting at? What's my point here? What are we going to say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. Anybody in here want to admit 
You're a Gentile who was not pursuing righteousness. Every hand ought to go up. How many of you still hate it when I ask? Never mind. Gentiles, look at that, who weren't pursuing righteousness. Righteousness was on display. Righteousness, if you wanted to know what it looked like, was written into the law. The, the Jews had access to God saying, if you could do righteousness, this is what it would look like. Ten commandments, 613 ordinances. This is what righteousness looks like. Nobody could do it. But Gentiles weren't even looking for it. And yet, despite the fact that we sinful, arrogant, prideful people... Self-centered, self-sufficient people who don't need a physician. People like us who weren't even looking for righteousness because we think we're fine in ourselves. Nevertheless, we attain to righteousness. The very righteousness of God given to us from God. How did that happen? Well, that goes back to God has mercy on who will have mercy. And he calls who he wants to call. And he didn't just call Israelites. He also called some Gentiles. Those Gentiles didn't pursue righteousness, but they attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. That's where righteousness comes from. Where are you going to get righteousness? How are you going to achieve righteousness in this lifetime? There's only one way you can do it. It's not by him that wills. It's not by him that runs. It's not by him who thinks he's going to achieve some good work so he can stand in front of God and say, didn't I do? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I do great works in your name? We know that doesn't work. We know Jesus' response to that. How do we get righteousness? How do we attain righteousness? It's not by anything in us or what we do. It's by faith. It's by confidence in Christ's finished work. If Christ died and rose again and sailed off into the blue and is sitting on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And if that's where you're finding your justification, if that's your only plea, then you're righteous. God gave you righteousness. God justified you, glorified you, says chapter 8. And did all that, why? Because of something in you? No, because whom he foreknew... He predestined. Who he knew in advance, who he had relationship with in advance, who he had mercy to in advance. Those are the people who end up justified and glorified. It's all God, 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 God. It can't be any part of you. You're not going to sit on the throne next to God and go, move over, you and me together, we got me saved. It's going to be God doing what only God can do and what God is willing to do. He is willing to be merciful and good and kind and gracious to some people. And man, thank God he's like that. But Israel, verse 31, pursuing the law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Part and parcel of the law, go back and read it. Read Exodus, read Deuteronomy. Read the law. It, it says right in it, look, if you do it, I'll give you life. It doesn't use the word look if you do it. But. <laughs> but it says right in it, if you abide in this law, you get eternal life in exchange. And nobody save Christ managed to keep that law. But they believed. 
that that law and their doing of the law, their participation in the law, by their flesh, they believed that was going to get them righteousness. And it didn't. It failed utterly to get them righteousness because they could not keep the law. They did not attain. They did not arrive at that law. So as a consequence, Gentiles who weren't pursuing righteousness got righteousness by faith. Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Verse 32, why? I'm so glad Paul's explaining it. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. How many times now has Paul said, it's not of him that wills, it's not of him that runs, it can't be of works. He's trying to tell you, you can't do it, you can't do it in your flesh. There's nothing you're going to do in your flesh that's going to obligate God because you can't be good enough, you can't be righteous enough, you can't be just enough that you could stand before God and be accepted on the basis of your own personal righteousness. Does everybody get that? I mean, I keep pounding away at it. But all I'm trying to say is, run to Christ. He's your only answer. He's the only solution to your problems. Run to Christ. Have faith in Christ. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. So they stumbled over the stumbling stone And once again, Paul reaches back into the Old Testament. He reaches back into Isaiah and he says, Behold, I lay in Zion. That's Jerusalem. I lay a stumbling stone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Christ. That's a prophecy about the fact that God is going to send Christ and Israel is going to stumble over him. Why do they stumble over him? Because they think they're achieving their own righteousness by their own works. And here he is saying, no man comes to the Father but by me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. If any man comes to me, he will be saved. He made himself the center of the religious universe. They said that was blasphemy and killed him over it. They stumbled over that rock. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him, this translation says, will not be disappointed. Boy, that's an understatement. (laughs) Oh, man. He who believes in Christ is going to have all the mercy, all the grace, all the goodness, all the all the joint airness that we get because we are sons of God with our brother Christ. And he's not afraid, not ashamed to call us brethren. I mean, the language gets really, really good. It's a whole lot more than just we're not let down. We're not disappointed. We're, in fact, going to receive, achieve everything God has intended for us since the foundation of the world. And that's just good, 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 good and gooder, much gooder news. Amen. So what about Israel then? 
That's where we're dangling at this moment. Okay, so the Gentiles have achieved righteousness and they got it by faith. But Israel, who were pursuing it by the law, they didn't achieve that law. They didn't do it by faith. So they haven't accomplished their righteousness. So then what about them? Chapter 10 is going to open with, well, my heart's desire for them is their salvation. And in chapter 10, Paul is going to kind of say how bad they are and how they've wrecked it. And then we're going to get to verse 11. And he's going to say, all Israel will be saved. So there. So I, I don't even know what summary statement to make. So, so God, the only God of the Bible, is exactly like that. He's sovereign and he can do whatever he wants. And we should be happy that he's going to do whatever he wants in both hardening and then saving Israel but we should also be happy that he does whatever he wants in the salvation of Micah, in the salvation of Megan or Leon. That only exists because God chose to. He decided to because he's that sovereign. That's why I love the sovereignty of God. Thank you. you got it? Got it. All right, good. Are there any questions about all that? No? Paul was clear? All right. Well, then grab a hymnal. Turn to 449 in your hymnal. To God be the glory.
for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.